Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Welcome to Good Friday service, a time for us to reflect and to remember what Christ has done on our behalf. Uh, probably, if you're like me, you woke up this morning thinking about the the cross and the, the events of the day, and um, it's a sorrow, sorrow-filled but joy-filled time, bittersweet. It's, it's Good Friday, but Sunday's coming uh, mentality, and it's uh, you know, why do we call it good? Well, we call it good because of what the, the what came of these events. And so, um, so tonight's going to be a little different in that um, we're not going to do a time of worship, per se. We're not going to have any music this evening. We're going to do an in-depth study of the Word of God. Um, to give you an understanding of what I'm talking about, we, we're going to cover three different chapters, Isaiah 53, Luke chapter 22, and 23. Um, normally, on a, on a normal 45 to 50 minute sermon, I have eight to nine pages of notes. I have 36 pages of notes tonight. So, um, yeah. yeah, I know that, that was wow of excitement, right? <laughs> um, so, in light of that... It's, it's very possible that I, my teaching could go close to two hours. And I recognize that for us to sit still for two hours is a challenging thing, unless the boob tube is on, and then it's easy for us to watch a movie for two hours. But So if at any point during the message tonight that you need to stretch your legs, you need to use the restroom, you need to leave because the time's gone too long, you're welcome to do so. Uh, you're invited to stay as long as you want, um, but if you if you need to move around or whatever, you're welcome to do that. So, um, so with that, let's just get to it. Um, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, and we'll go through all of um, chapter 53, and then we'll move over to Luke, and so. Uh, you'll have time to turn to Luke later. You don't need to stick your finger in there now and hold it for the next 45 minutes. So, All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for these people and the opportunity to gather in this place today, Lord, to um, allow the Word of God to soak into our hearts, to consider uh, the, the things that you walked through, Jesus, on our behalf, the, the depth of the love that you have for us, Lord, it's, it's good for us to soak these things in, to remember the cross, to remember the sacrifice that you've made. And so just as we read these things tonight, I pray that you would guide our hearts, that you would draw us unto you. I pray that our minds would just be overwhelmed with the, the depth of your love. I pray, Father, that you would help us to set our distractions aside. And I know that it's an overwhelming thought to think that we're going to listen to a, a long sermon, but... I pray that you would just equip us and give us the strength for that. And I just pray that you'd be with my words and that you would help me to rightly divide your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. When, uh, when the Christian church in China gets together um, and they have the opportunity for an American 
pastor to come in, very often they will gather for a day or days to have church. Um, David Platt, who wrote the book Radical, was invited to an underground church in China, and he um, started teaching uh, in one of their meetings and ended up going somewhere around eight hours and they said, you're coming back tomorrow to finish the rest of the New Testament because we're not letting you leave without hearing what you would have to say about the New Testament. So, um, so in light of that, David Platt has actually started a thing called Secret Church that um, happens on Good Friday, um, a simulcast where he generally teaches anywhere from six to seven hours. And so, so you guys are getting off light if I go two hours. That's all I'm saying. So. We've been working our way through the book of Isaiah. We've been actually, and, and it was very um, serendipitous that um, my son would need to have his appendix out uh, on, a, on a Tuesday, and then I end up missing a Wednesday night, and then I had a meeting planned for this week. So for two weeks, I've been waiting to teach Isaiah chapter 53. That's the chapter that we're on in our midweek study. And it just so happens I get to teach it on Good Friday, so I found that uh, as a blessing. But we've been looking at the Savior as a, a suffering servant, uh, the Savior uh, coming and not just ruling as, reign, uh, as reigning king, but also as the, the servant that must come and suffer. And that's what chapter 53 especially depicts, that, that he came as a suffering service, servant. And that's, that's what the people failed to understand at the time Christ lived. They dismissed him when they recognized that he wasn't going to be their political savior. We talked about that on Sunday during Palm Sunday, that they're, they're ushering him in with palm branches and with um, the celebration, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because they thought he was going to deliver them from the, the tyranny of Rome. He thought they were going to be his, uh, he, he was going to be their political savior. And then that crowd that was shouting, blessed be the name of the Lord, um, Hosanna, come save us. By the end of the week, many of the same people are shouting, crucify him. Uh, because he didn't fulfill what they wanted, and so they dismiss him. Um, little did they know that it was all part of God's greater plan, that their rejection was actually fulfillment of prophecy given in Isaiah. That, that God's plan was bigger than just saving the, the nation of Israel from the tyranny of Rome. It was saving God's people from the tyranny of sin. So we're going to pick it up in Isaiah 52, 13, um, and head into Isaiah 53. Uh, 52, 13 is probably actually a better chapter break. Remember the chapters and the verses came almost 1,500 years later. Um, and so uh, sometimes they are really, really good. And, and this one I wouldn't necessarily agree with, not that I'm an authority of any kind, but um, I think the, the chapter break is probably better at 52.13. Uh, it's going to show us this is one man suffering for the sins of others. This is what's known as the Mount Everest of the Old Testament, the kind of the, the, the pinnacle or the peak of, of the old, old Testament is pointing to this prophecy that is given in Isaiah uh, 53. So Isaiah 52, 13 says, Behold, in other words, look, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Now it's interesting. He says there, my servant shall deal prudently. And when you think, you and I think prudently, that's 
He, he, shall, deal, he shall be wise in his, his decisions. He shall be, uh, make the right choices. And, and it certainly means all of those things. But ideally, what prudently means here is that he will accomplish what he set out to do. So that which he was sent to do is what he will accomplish. That's what it means to deal prudently. His servant will deal prudently. It shall be finished is the idea. Now think about what Christ cried out on the cross. It is finished. That being a fulfillment of this verse, he shall deal prudently. It says he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. In other words, it's this almost building of his glory. It's a, a building up. You know, he shall be exalted. That means lifted up. He shall be extolled. That means lifted up. And he shall be uh, very high. That means lifted up. So it's up and up and up is the idea of this suffering servant that there, there's a time coming when he shall be exalted, extolled, and made very high. Well, did that happen with Christ? It certainly did. He was exalted in the resurrection, lifted from the grave to life. He was extolled in the ascension, lifted from the earth to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. And he was lifted very high in the glorification, made the name above all names, that at his name every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And what I like about starting here at verse 13 is that even prior to speaking of the Savior's suffering, God is foreshadowing His victory. God is foreshadowing His exaltation. He shall be lifted up. We haven't even gotten to the part where He is going to suffer, but the promise is there so that we can keep it in the back of our mind. This picture, this promise is where we get our name. This is Calvary. This is the the place our Savior died. It says in verse 14, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. His visage was marred. That means he was beaten. Uh, Literally, it's the idea, literally it became a visage of desolation. His, the way that he appeared became the picture of desolation. Uh, the, the way that he was beaten on our behalf became a, a picture of, 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 uh, of desolation. His form, it says, more than the sons of men, meaning he no longer appeared human. How brutal was the beating that our Savior went through on our behalf? So much so that he no longer appeared human. His beard ripped from his face, beaten with rods, with his fists, spit upon, a crown of thorns crushed into his head, the scourging that would occur, that by the time that he got to the cross, it was barely recognizable, if at all, that he was human. And he says in verse 15, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. 
So the verse starts, verse 15, with the word so. In other words, because of verse 14, because he will be, his visage will be marred, and because his form will become distorted, because of the brutal way that he will be treated, the result will be that there will be a sprinkling of many nations, and the kings will shut their mouths. The many nations shall be sprinkled. What an interesting phrase. What what could that possibly mean? Well, it's interesting that in the Levitical law, the, the um, ritual purification for the cleansing of a leper would be that he would be sprinkled with blood. And certainly we understand that leprosy is a, is a perfect picture of sin. It is a, uh, there is no known cure for leprosy in the same way that there is no known cure for sin outside of the hand of God. And so in the way the cleansing for leprosy was to be ritually sprinkled, so too would the sacrifice of the suffering servant be a ritual cleansing for sin. He shall sprinkle many nations. In other words, even here in Isaiah, God is saying the plan is is to, to bless more, to save more than just the nation of Israel his blood would reach to many nations. His blood would reach to the corner of Livingston and Bryce in Columbus, Ohio, 43232. He would reach even us. So Isaiah or chapter 53, verse 1 says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember, there was no chapter break here. So this question comes on the heels of the kings considering that which they saw and, and, and hear, or that which they did not hear. The, the, the question is, who would believe our report? In other words, who would believe this teaching? Who would believe this doctrine? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is God revealed in the flesh, an arm was a symbol of strength. To, to show your arm was to, to make a, uh, a, uh, an, offense, uh, an offensive attack, a plan. This is God coming in the flesh. The question in verse 1 is being asked with an understanding that the report would actually be rejected. Who has believed our report? There's, a, there's an underlying context in the original language to say, well, they, they haven't believed the report. So the question comes then on the heels of the kings who were considering, but the question comes and says, who has believed our report? In verse 1 of Isaiah 53, we're going to see the, the, the written word of God is rejected, and then by verse 3, we're actually going to see the living word of God has been rejected as well. It says in verse 2, and this is, this is a, a great verse, for he, he being the Savior, he being the, the, the instrument that God has chosen for salvation, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. First thing I want us to note about this verse is it says, for he shall grow up before him, both he and him capitalized. That is, he, Jesus, shall grow up before him, the Father. Yet both are eternal. 
So how is he going to grow up before him? Because they always were, they always shall be, they will always grow, they will always be. And so if both are eternal, how can one of them grow up? Well, it's interesting. In Philippians chapter 2, probably some verses that you're familiar with, it's called the doctrine of the kenosis. It's the idea of the, the servant, the suffering servant, the Savior, emptying himself of his godly right, as it were. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How is it that he, the eternal one, could grow up before him, the, uh, the eternal one, the father? It's called God became flesh and dwelt among us. God incarnate, John chapter 1, verse 14. That's how this prophecy is fulfilled. The eternal one would be able to grow up. And it says that he would grow up as a tender plant. Interesting terminology there. And, and I've always considered it to be uh, that he was gentle. And certainly our Savior is a gentle God, wooing people unto him and caring for him. But it means more than that. It's not just gentle. It's not, it's not as some would depict that, that our Savior was effeminate. It's not, it's not that type of gentleness. Uh, the, the word tender here is actually the opposite of the word hardy. When you consider plants, which is what he has projected here and what he has given us, he says a tender plant he shall, he shall grow up as a tender plant. Well, in that context, the, a tender plant is the opposite of a hardy plant. You've heard of a hardy plant before, a plant that does well. It's actually, a, the, the definition of being a hardy plant is a plant that is indigenous to the region that it's found in. So if you, you know, we, we're in the Midwest, and I know so little about horticulture that I'm probably going to give a bad example here, but we've got pine trees, <laughs> They're, I think I'm safe with pine trees. They're indigenous to Ohio. They're indigenous to Ohio. They're, they're a hardy plant. They would do well here. They're found here. Well, the opposite then of being hardy or being indigenous is to be a, a plant that is transplanted. A tender plant would be one that is not normally found in, in, in the location that you're finding it in. So consider that as you just consider who Christ was. As hardy as indigenous or common to the area, so tender then takes on the meaning of being transplanted from another environment. Did Jesus do that? Yeah, he left his throne on high. He left his environment, his throne on high, and was transplanted. He became tender to the earth to grow up before the Father. And then he likens it to a root out of dry ground. If there's a root in the plant, there is life in the plant. The root can find water and there is life. The dry ground that this root was found in was the religious scene of the day. They hadn't heard from God in nearly 400 years. There were no prophets that came 
Uh, for, as the Old Testament closed and as Jesus came onto the scene, it was a dry ground. There weren't, the religious leaders of the day weren't interested in pointing people toward God. They were interested in standing between people and God and trying to exhort them. No, that's not the right word. Trying to take their money. That's what I was trying to say. Extort. Thank you. <laughs> Only one hour and 38 minutes to go. <laughs> <laughs> trying to extort them. Thank you. Um, the dry ground was the religious scene of the day. And then it says, he shall have no comeliness. In other words, Jesus was just your everyday, average, normal looking guy. He was, you wouldn't pick him out of a lineup. You wouldn't pick him out of a crowd. He was basic. He was just, just a guy. There was nothing to distinguish him as special in the way that he looked. There was nothing to, to say, well, there's the Savior, unless it was prompted by the Spirit, as it was with John the Baptist. He was common. How about this? He was approachable. There would have, as people looked at Jesus, there would have been no reason for anybody to say, I can't go talk to him. I can't. He was approachable. It says in verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The despising there is, is, is meaning that they were mocking him, that they were setting uh, their, their, their face against him, that, they were, um, he, that they, he was being rejected by them. It says, um, remember the promise that he will be exalted, and yet he willingly goes to this depth that he's willing to be despised and rejected by his own even. I'm overwhelmed by the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, as I read through these verses. How deep the Father's love for us, that he would willingly go to this depth, that he would be despised and rejected by men, that he would be mocked on our behalf. The promise is coming. He will be exalted, as we read in 52.13. But prior to that exaltation, there is this man that is acquainted with sorrow and grief, a man that has been rejected by his own people. It's interesting, and I, I hoped to be able to show it tonight, and there's about a 10-minute video of a, a couple young um, Messianic Jews who went over to Israel to show the people of Israel this chapter, Isaiah chapter 53. The majority of rabbis don't teach this chapter anymore. It's actually a forbidden chapter in the in the um, original in the in the in the Hebrew religion. And so, as they, you can look it up on YouTube. Just uh, um, just look up the you know Isaiah fifty three video, and uh, it's it's fascinating. So as they 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 pull out a Hebrew Bible and these these. These men on the wailing wall and these, these different men and women throughout just the city streets of Jerusalem begin to read through Isaiah chapter 53. You can see what, what the, their emotion overcoming them to the point where, where they read this chapter or they read this verse and, they, you know, and, and the, the young men ask them, well, what does that mean? And they, they have to admit it means that we, we forsook him, that we rejected him. It's, 
It's, it's the weight is on their shoulder. And, and just as they work their way through this entire chapter, they're recognizing that the prophecy has been fulfilled. And then they get to the end of the video and the, the young men ask him, Do we, have, you, have you seen anybody in history that fulfills these things? And, and they can't help but say, Jesus. It's a, it's a powerful video, 10 minutes or so. Uh, take the time to check it out later. So, um, so, But he was mocked. And, and we need to remember that that too is part of God's salvation plan. The Savior must be rejected by his own people and not embraced by his people to fulfill Scripture and to fulfill God's entire plan for salvation. In order to be reconciled to God, a sacrifice had to be made. Somebody had to die. The Savior had to die. The sacrifice would not have happened if he had not been despised. So verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Probably the most familiar part of Isaiah chapter 53, those, those three verses. What I want us to hear in this, and especially tonight, in these verses is the he, we transactions that happen in those verses. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. It was his stripes that heal us. It was, uh, he has worn, he bore our iniquity. This beautiful transaction between the righteous and the wretched. All we bring is our grief and our sorrow and transgression and iniquity. And he gives us his peace by taking our punishment. Just pulling apart each verse as we, uh, as we go. In verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The word griefs there would literally mean he has borne our sickness. Sin is a sickness that he has taken upon himself. And it says there, and he carried our sorrows, literally our pains. And, and, and the word born there means to He's, that he's, he's worn them. He's, he's put it on like a coat. He's, he's taken them on. He's carried them on his shoulder. It says that he was smitten by God. Hit, it was, it, the word hit means hit there. The, that he was, he was cast away. He was set aside. The father turned his face away from his son. Because He bore our sin, because the Savior took upon His shoulder our sin, the perfect Father could no longer look upon Him. Verse 5 begins with the word, but. In other words, is what but means. Uh, you know, uh, and so in spite of their view of Him, here's the why, here's the what. 
Though they, they, they esteemed him stricken, here's what happened. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the, the punishment for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. He was smitten by God. The Father turned his face away. But in spite of all of uh, their view, we see that he was wounded for us. The word wounded could also be, and in fact is in Zechariah, translated the word pierced. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, speaking of the Messiah, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, capital M, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. It's interesting, as Isaiah is penning these words some 700 years before Christ came, crucifixion had not been invented yet. The, the, the primary capital punishment of the day would have been hanging or stoning so that Zechariah would say that they would look upon the Savior whom they pierced is significant because crucifixion hadn't even been invented. The word bruised there in verse 5 means crushed. It wasn't just a, it wasn't just a flesh wound. Uh, he was crushed for us. The chastisement or the punishment or the price was paid Our peace was bought by his suffering. It says, by his stripes we are healed. We know that the scourging happened. Paul would tell us that, I think it's three times that he was scourged. 39 lashes. Uh, They didn't allow 40. Um, They felt that that was too severe. Or they allowed 40, but they always only did 39 because they didn't want to over-hurt somebody. By his stripes were healed, made whole. I think one of the common questions that is asked, and, and as we read these things that we need to remind ourselves of, is who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Because they're the ones that had the instrument of death, the crucifixion. Was it the Jews? Because they're the ones that cried out crucify him, and handed them over to Rome. And I don't know that it would be right for us to lay blame in either camp. I think it's intentional that um, the Lamb of God was, was taken from us by both so that we can say, it's all of us. It's our hand that held him to the cross, that nailed him to the cross. Verse 6 again, we read once, but all... We, like sheep, have gone astray. All means most of us. No, it means all of us. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the Savior, the iniquity of us all. We all have gone our own way. Everyone went their own way. Judges chapter 21 ends, the book of Judges ends with this thought. And I I would say it's just as relevant in March 25th, 2016, as it was when it was written, it says, In those days there were no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Do we see that today? 
Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes? Yeah, we certainly do. We go back to my teaching in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. The way I define the pattern of this world, I think it fits the best, at least in my understanding. The pattern of this world is that I am my authority. That's the pattern of this world. I'm the ultimate authority for my life. That's, that's what, if, you, if, you pers- if anybody is pursuing anything, sex, drugs, or rock and roll, what they've said is, I'm going to decide what's best for me. That's the pattern of this world. And, and Paul is saying, don't conform to that pattern. In other words, submit yourself to the authority of God. That's breaking that pattern. But everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All we like sheep have gone astray. We f- have fulfilled that. We lived out the idea, I am my own authority. And then in light of that, or uh, with that in, in our mind, it says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the idea there that the Lord laid on him doesn't mean that he gently set it upon his shoulder. It's, a, it's, it's indicating a heavy hand there. The Lord laid heavily on him, our Savior. It, in, other, in other words, it, it caused, um, it caused, it, he caused it to land on him. There's, a, there's almost a violence to that word. That's what, that's what our Savior died of. The, 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 the Father allowing the iniquity of us all to land heavily upon the shoulder of our Savior. That's what He died of. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 would say, the wages of sin is death. And the Father laid on Jesus all of our iniquity. It was the cause of his death. Interesting note about verse 6. Uh, Dwight Moody, uh, uh, Moody Bible Institute, the uh, seminary and what have you, um, was asked once. He had held a bunch of revival meetings, and uh, there was a, a man who went to all of them who was just stubborn, wasn't ready to give his life to the Lord, and sat through all the meetings and never answered the call, never went up for the altar call. And as Moody was leaving the city, um, the man felt like the time was now and started chasing Moody down and met him at the train station. And as as he was getting on board uh, the train and the train began pulling away, he's trying to have this conversation. And he asked Dwight, he said, what must I do to be saved? And, 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 uh, his reply, Moody's reply was Isaiah 53, 6. And he said, what? What does that mean? What, what does that mean? And, it's, and he, he replied and said, enter at the first all and depart at the last all. And so it's just an interesting picture when you read that then again, Isaiah 53, 6. Enter at the first all, depart at the last all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How do we become saved? We recognize that all we like sheep have gone astray. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And the Lord has laid on Him, the Savior, the iniquity of us all. Perfect explanation of the gospel. Kind of a neat story there. Okay, verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Those that would scourge in the days of the Romans, they would 
they would take the, the prisoner, they would take the, the person that they were going to beat, and they would tie their hands together and lay them over a log to expose their back muscles and to stretch out their back muscles. And they would, um, at least in the scourging of Jesus, they would in their, their, their whip, they would put pieces of glass and pieces of metal and pieces of bone to shred the skin as it was set in. And the idea of scourging was, the purpose of scourging by the Romans was to get a confession. And so that's why they would begin to scourge people. And as confession was made, then the, those giving the scourging would let up. The more you confessed to, the lighter the blows would become. And, and the less they would be because they've exacted what they want to. They've exacted a confession. Yet Jesus said nothing. He opened not his mouth. Jesus endured the full brunt of the scourger's punishment because he stayed silent, bearing the full weight of the punishment for our sin. As a lamb to the slaughter, John the Baptist, as Jesus approached him coming to the Jordan River, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 8 would say, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was cut off from the land of the living. Death was the price that must have been paid. Why? Well, he tells us, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. It was the divine hand laying the stroke upon our Savior for the transgression of His people, that the reconciliation may be made. In verse 9 it says, And they made His grave with the wicked, but with the rich at His death, because He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in His mouth. It's interesting that He he was strung up as a criminal, and yet He had done no violence. There was the only crime that he was accused of was being the king of the Jews. He made his grave with the wicked. Well, certainly we see that at the crucifixion. There on Calvary, he died between two thieves. He made his grave with the wicked. But then it says, but the, with the rich at his death. And we know that Joseph of Arimathea lent him his tomb. Joseph was a very wealthy man. He had a tomb, uh, a tomb hewn out of stone. And, and that was not a... A, a cheap thing to do in those days. And so that's an indicator that Joseph was rich. And we know that he, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, one of the most powerful men in the city at the time, took on, think about this, they're, they're the ones that take him off the cross on the night of the Passover, right? They, they willingly took on ritual impurity they would not have been able to celebrate the Passover because they would have been impure for touching a dead body. And yet they did because they understood who Jesus was. Verse 10 is overwhelming if you sit in the truth of it. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Not once in my life have I 
been pleased to beat my kids, to, to chastise them, not beat them in an abusive way, but even in a corrective way. It's not a pleasing thing. It's not something that I would enjoy. Now, I enjoy the result of it. I enjoy the, the, hopefully the discipline that comes in their lives from it. But what a, what a nearly unfathomable thought. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What a statement of love. It pleased the Lord. How his love is so great for us that it was a pleasing thing to strike his own son with our punishment. How deep the love the Father has for us. It says there, um, when you make his soul an offering for sin. This was more than a sacrifice of his physical body. This was a sacrifice, an offering for sin. His soul was an offering. But I like the picture of verse 10. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. In other words, death is not the end. This isn't isn't the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. Remember the promise at the beginning. He shall be exalted. He shall be extolled. He shall be lifted very high. It pleased the Lord to bruise him for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the writer of Hebrews said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For, for the joy set before us. What is that joy set before us? What is it that pleased the Father to bruise the Son? It's us. <laughs> what does He see in us? I don't know. <laughs> because we bring our wretchedness. Because we bring our iniquity. Because we bring our filth. And yet His love for us. that For the joy that was set before Him a right relationship with that which He created, you and I, He endured the cross. Uh, Going back to verse 10, it says there, um, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. And that is what the, the, the pleasure of the Lord is to have right relationship with us. It will prosper in His hand. Jesus won't be defeated by death. He'll overcome sin and death. Fellowship is restored to a just and holy God in the same way that He couldn't look upon His Son as he bore the iniquity of us all, he cannot look upon sinful man. Yet in Christ we are made righteous and brought into right relationship with a holy God. Verse 11, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my servant, my righteous servant, shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This was an act of justification. This was making the wrong right. 
By him bearing our iniquity, we become justified. The word justified, the easy way to remember what that means is is to break it out. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Not only does he forgive us for our sin, he removes the record of it. We, we go to God, and we talked about this at the beginning of the book of Romans, and we say, hey God, do you remember that one time when I did this sin? And the answer is no. It's not that because God has forgotten, it's because that he chooses not to remember. That's justification. We have been justified by this act of love. Remember what the angel said to Joseph when Mary was found to be pregnant? You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And then verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This isn't just an indication that his name was going to live in infamy forever, that he was going to be exalted, he was going to be a get a portion with the great. This was because because Christ willingly took on flesh, because he lived a sinless life, because he bore our sin and made intercession on, on our behalf, then to him, the one that will be exalted, he gets a portion with the great. I divide him a portion with the great. And he gets a divide of the spoil. It's, a, it's an indication that he is going to conquer He is going to be victorious. He's going to overcome that which would take us to the grave, that thing that we cannot overcome, our sin. He shall be as the conqueror. I'm going to read Philippians 2 again, the the part we talked about where Jesus emptied himself. I'm going to continue reading. So just as a reminder, Philippians 2, verse 5. You've heard this already once tonight. Let this be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Then it goes on to say, this is this part I haven't read, Therefore, God has also exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Death wasn't going to hold him down. And even though it's Friday, Sunday is coming. So now we're going to read the account of the last hours of Jesus' life and his death. And we'll see how well all of this that we've read in Isaiah 53 is fulfilled in him. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 says in uh, verse 1, Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. We know this, we believe this to be April 3rd, 33 AD. Uh, If you look at the timing and the 
uh, number of days given in the prophecy of Daniel. It, it seems to work out really, really well that it would be April 3rd, 33 AD. We know that he was crucified on the day of preparation, which would be the day before the Sabbath, which is why we celebrate his crucifixion on a Friday, the day before Sabbath. We also know that he was killed on the day of Passover, which is the 14th of Nisan. That occurred only twice in the range of 26 to 34 AD, and that was either 30 AD or 33 AD. And because of the historical accounts of Pilate, we can pretty well determine that it was on in the year 33 AD. They're getting ready to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called Passover. Um, the, that was them, they would um, sacrifice a lamb, remembering that the death angel had passed over them as he brought them out of Egypt. Uh, right, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is ultimately become the Passover lamb for us. That symbolism is heavy, and I won't go into all the details of that tonight, but it's, uh, it's just a beautiful picture. Um, let's see, Exodus chapter 12 would tell us that the requirements for the sacrifice was to be a lamb of which uh, was without blemish. They would actually spend two or three days, I can't remember, I think it's three days inspecting the lamb that was going to be offered as the Passover lamb to make sure that this lamb didn't have blemish and Jesus was sinless. He had no blemish. So verse 2 says, And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. The, the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, their hatred of Jesus has been escalating for quite a time now. And now it's to the point that they're plotting not just to apprehend him, which would be the, like the logical thing to do. Let's just, let's just ship Jesus somewhere else. Let's just throw him in a jail cell. That, that's, if they wanted to get rid of him, it's, it's a big step to go to, I think I want to kill him. But that's where they're at. It's sad. It's sad that the religious leaders of the day are looking to break one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. <laughs> because they were, they were supposed to uphold it, and they're looking to break it. It's sad that they had a fear of the people, it tells us there, rather than a fear of God. It's sad that they thought the best way to get rid of their problem was to kill it. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. They were looking for a way. Judas shows up. There's a way. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. And a lot of people, a lot of commentaries would try to justify Judas's actions. They would say things like, oh, Judas was just trying to force Jesus' hand. He, he was trying to get him to move forward with his plan and, and to become the political or the religious leader of the day. But Luke's account would indicate otherwise. Satan entered Judas. <laughs> his plan was evil. Darkness and light cannot occupy the same space so that would indicate that Judas's betrayal was not just an innocent maneuver trying to get Jesus into the right position. What it was was 
part of God's plan of redemption. God's timing is perfect. And all these things that we're studying in the last week of Jesus' life happened like clockwork so that the Lamb of God could be slain on the day of the Passover. Judas, after Christ was uh, killed, felt remorse for what he had done. He returned the money that was given to him, 30 pieces of silver. That was fulfilling prophecy. It, it It was a fulfillment of prophecy that he would return the money. He didn't come to a godly repentance. If that were the case, he wouldn't have taken his life. Judas takes his own life. Verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, which when the Passover must be killed. And so we arrive at the day of crucifixion. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house in which he enters. That would have been an unusual sight in those days. Women carried the water. So for a man to be carrying a pitcher of water would have been a distinguishing mark. Oh, follow him because he's carrying water. So that would have been easy to spot. Verse 11, Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Jesus, moving in the power of God, we saw him um, use uh, somebody else's donkey on Sunday. Now he's getting ready to use somebody's house. You know, we, we need to... A good reminder, how loosely do we hold on to the things that God has given us? Um, Verse 12, then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And they said to him with, then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus in the last hours of his days, wanting to spend the, the last hours with his disciples, the men that he has spent the last three years with, he wants to continue to pour into them. He knows that he has just hours left. He's aware that he's going to suffer. So they recline at the table and Jesus continues to teach his disciples. I don't know if you guys have ever been through a Seder meal I would highly recommend that if you haven't, that it would be beneficial for you uh, and for us as Christians. Uh, you get to see how the Passover meal so represents the gospel. We did one three, about three years ago. It's been a while since we've done one, but uh, if you have the opportunity or are invited to somebody doing a Seder meal, the, uh, the representation of the Passover meal, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, And he desired to eat the Passover with them before he suffered. Verse 16, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's, uh, He's saying, I'm going to fulfill the role of the Passover lamb. Therefore, the sacrifice will be complete and the price will be paid. I'll no longer have to eat it. But he says, when I do it again, we'll be in your presence. When, when, when Christ does it again, we'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, His bride reconciled and brought back to Him. Verse 17, familiar verses. Then He took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And He took 
bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the Seder meal, in the Passover meal, three pieces of unleavened bread were placed in a bag, each one representing different things. The first representing Abraham, the second representing Isaac, and the third representing Jacob, the the patriarchs of the the Hebrew nation. First, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then during the meal, the middle piece, the one representing Isaac, would be broken. And that's the one that Jesus is now breaking. As Isaac was a foreshadow of the way Christ would be sacrificed, Isaac taken to the very same mountain that Jesus is going to die on. Jesus is now saying, I am that Isaac. I am the body broken. I am that bread. My body given for you. Verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup or this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. A new covenant. Jesus in this moment is beginning something new. No longer will you be under the covenant of the law. My blood will be shed for the remission of your sin. You're no longer under law. As Romans would say, you are under grace. That cup he raised after supper was the third cup. It's, it's representative of the cup of fellowship. And he calls that cup of fellowship the new covenant. Why? Because by His blood, we are brought into fellowship with our Savior, with our God. And so while the Passover meal was to be a time of remembrance, looking back to what God had done to deliver the Jews from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, it was also a time to look forward to the Messiah delivering them from the bondage of sin. The bread was unleavened. Leaven represents sin. They were to remove it from, the, from their households. They were to, in other words, repent. They were to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts. The blood was a covering for sin, an atonement. And the lamb's blood sealed them from the death angel, which was God's wrath on Egypt, as Christ's blood shields us from God's wrath on our sin. Verse 21, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. Christ often dined with sinners and the like. (laughs) Christ always dined with sinners and the like. This meal is no different. His betrayer is with him on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves, which of, it was it, which of them it was who would do this thing? Who's going to be the betrayer? And then, now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. <laughs> Silly disciples. <laughs> would you do such a thing? Were you sitting at the table with Jesus at his last meal? He's going to suffer. Would you be, and he says, one of you is going to betray. Would you do such a thing? Well, not me. Surely, surely it's not me. It must be you that's going to betray him. It's, it couldn't be me. I mean, I'm better than you, right? I rock. Come on, man. It's not me. It's got to be you. How quickly pride besets. And he said to them, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, 
And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I among you as the one who serves. We know through the Gospel of John that Jesus girds a towel and takes on the lowest of servant jobs, washing the disciples' feet. He's establishing the Christian principle, wanting to teach them to the very end. And the Christian principle is that the greater shall serve the lesser. And he's our example. He's the greatest. And he has served the least. He washes the disciples' feet. He shows them how to serve. He tells them, don't act like the heathen, like the Gentiles. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. The Jesus style is serving, laying down our lives. You want the fast track to success in Calvary Chapel? Serve. Clean the parking lot. Scrub the toilets. Do what it takes. Be joyful in your service. God loves a cheerful giver. Whatever it would take, humble ourselves that we might serve. You consider yourself great? Show me by the way that you serve. Not me. Show God. Verse 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's, he's telling them, just as, as Isaiah told us that, that, God, or that Christ would be exalted, he's telling them, a day will come when you will rule, but not yet. Now is not the time. Now is the time to serve. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Oh, man, Jesus has prayed that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I love Peter. Open mouth, insert foot. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Note, note from this conversation that Satan had to ask permission, right? Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Satan, he had to do that with Job as well. If you read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, God, in fact, does rule over all. So all the events of your life are either caused or permitted by God. It says there that Satan wants to sift Peter, not enter Peter like he did with Judas. Satan wants to sift Peter. He wants to shake him around violently. I remember sifting dirt with my dad in the garden. You just you put a bunch of dirt in this little sifter thing and just two of you grab one side and you just shake the snot out of it. That's the idea here. Jesus prayed for Peter. When Jesus prays, what's the answer? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Peter's faith does not fail. His strength does. His will does, but his faith does not. Peter repents. He becomes the man that strengthens the brethren, just as Jesus has said. Verse 35, And he said to them, When I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, and sandals, 
Did you, not, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, that which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. I would recommend as you walk through this weekend that maybe you take the time to study the upper room account, the crucifixion account in all of the Gospels. It'd be beneficial for you to read all of them. It helps to get a whole picture. Much more was said than we get here in Luke. The upper room discourse, John chapters 15, 16, and 17 help fill in this picture. But Jesus prays for them and he prays for us. In John chapter 17, it's this beautiful picture that John prays for us as he did for Peter. Coming out, upper room, last meal now over, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. He crossed the uh, Kidron Brook. He, he walked along the temple or walked through the temple um, and went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation, and that should be your prayer as much as it's mine. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is is praying and asking, if there is any other way, Lord, if, if this cup could pass from me, let that happen. Was there another way? The answer is no. How do we know? Because Jesus went through the cross. Had there been another way, the Father would have allowed that way. But Jesus did in fact go to the cross. He surrendered his will to that of the Father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. You and I should say that as well. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We surrender to the will of the Father. And then verse 43, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's intense. That, that his sweat would become so concentrated, it would be like blood falling down. In fact, there's a medical condition uh, hemato, hematohydrosis. Dr. Paul, how'd I do? Close? Close. <laughs> That's good for me. I'll take close. Hematohydrosis. That's brought on by stress. It's a very rare inst- thing, but it is documented that, that blood actually comes through the pores. And uh, it's uh, medically documented here. Dr. Luke was a doctor. So he, he says his sweat became like great drops of blood brought on by stress. Has there been a greater stress than Christ in the garden? No. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter temptation. That's the second time he said that, lest you enter temptation. When God repeats something, it's generally pretty important. We should be prayed up. 
It's easy for us to think we can do this life in our own strength, but it's best to rely on God's strength when he warns to pray lest we enter temptation. That should be a part of our prayers regularly. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to him to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, we know that to be Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. It is a very dark hour indeed when the mentality is, let's kill God. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, this all in the middle of the night. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man also was with him. But he denied, he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. After a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know who I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. What, would, what was that like? Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. I don't think that Jesus looked at Peter with eyes of anger or hatred, perhaps some disappointment, perhaps brokenhearted, knowing that Peter needed to walk through this in order to become the leader that he was going to become. Take a note just real quickly of Peter's fall. Note the mistakes that he made. He was sleeping instead of praying. He followed at a distance, and he sat at the enemy's fire. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The men who held Jesus mocked him despised, and beat him, wounded for our transgressions. Verse 64, having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? You you blindfold somebody and then begin to assault them. They have no way of preparing for the hit. If you can see a blow coming, then perhaps you can deflect it. Perhaps you can move your head in just such a way that you don't take the full force of the blow, but being blindfolded, you don't have that option. Isaiah 
52.14, his visage was marred. And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means let me by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And so he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And and they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Who can we identify with this in this chapter? Judas? Peter, the religious leaders, the guards. I know that I've denied my Savior. I know that I've betrayed Him. I know that the stripes that He took were at my hand. How deep the Father's love for us. One more chapter to go. Dawn has come, the rooster has crowed, the trial can begin. So they take him to Pilate, verse 1, then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. That would have included even Joseph of Arimathea, the one who would later take him off the cross, but to be absent from this would have been uh, an accusation. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation. Pilate was the Roman leader of the region, just so we understand. We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In the Jewish court, the one that happened at night, which is not a valid court you know, thing, in the Jewish court, his crime was blasphemy. Here, they've changed the accusation. Now they're saying he's guilty of insurrection. This is obviously a kangaroo court. They, they just want to get this pushed through. The, the Jewish leaders, they're lying about what had happened. They came up with the lie that they thought would condemn Christ in the eyes of Rome. He's an insurrectionist. They're saying that, he can't pay, that we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. And they're hoping that that's what will crucify Christ. Pilate asked him and saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Notice the question was not, Do you say you are the king of the Jews? The question was, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers truthfully. Jesus never lies. It is as you say, I am the king of the Jews. Were Pilate to ask Christ if he were the king of the Romans, I think he probably would have answered the same way. For he's king of all. So Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no fault in this man. Pilate trying to dismiss this. He doesn't want to deal with it. It's almost as if he's saying, this is a waste of my time. But they were more fierce, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Galilee was a hot spot for those that would try to rise up against Rome. A lot of insurrectionists came out of Galilee, evidently. And so because of that, Galilee would have been a buzzword to the Romans. Oh, he's from Galilee. So they're trying, they're trying everything they can to get, to get them to take Jesus. They're trying to use that against Jesus. It doesn't work in the way they hope. Jesus 
or the Pilate does something different. Look at verse 6. When Pilate heard of Galilee, oh, he's from Galilee, he asked if the man were Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, <laughs> who was also in Jerusalem at the time. They're trying to get a swift verdict. Pilate, just let's string him up. Let's crucify him. And, and oh, he's from Herod's jurisdiction. Oh, okay. He can go talk to Herod then. Send him over there. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. He's not, Herod's not interested in the truth that Jesus has to say. He's not interested in him being the Messiah. He doesn't care about that. He just wants Jesus to do a trick for him, right? He hoped to see some miracle done by him. Hey, Jesus, you and the court jester, let's see what you guys can do for me. That's the idea. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. As a sheep before his shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. And the chief priests and scribes stood vehemently and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Silly Jews, ruling is for Romans. There's plots, there's subplots going on, but we need to focus um, on all that is being done to the Savior, and that He's enduring it all, and that through Him we might be saved. He had the power to smite them all. Christ could have crushed them. In the garden, in one of the other accounts, he answers by saying, I am, and all of them fall down. He could have crushed them. Yet he's a perfect display of meekness, power under control. He knows what God's plan is, and he is all about accomplishing that plan. This Herod that Jesus remained silent before is Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa ends up having his day as he allows Christ to be mocked. It says in Acts chapter 12, Now when Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and was eaten by worms and died. If I could pick my way of death, it would not be eaten by worms. <laughs> That's not a pleasant death. Anyway, we're distracted. Back to Pilate who's starting to get upset by this in verse 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I find no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, uh, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Isaiah 53.5, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. 
Verse 17, for it was necessary for him to release one of them to the feast. And, out, and they all cried out at once saying, away with this man and release us Barabbas, another insurrectionist who had been thrown into prison for certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And they said, then he said to them a third time, Why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. At this point, the mob mentality has set in. Everybody is on board with releasing Barabbas and crucifying Jesus. The, the crowd's pumped up into a frenzy. The chief priests have done their best to get everybody excited and on their side. It's amazing to see how quickly common sense goes out the window. But the, chief, the voices of these men and the chief priests prevailed. Pilate three times tried to remove himself from the occasion. Perhaps he was trying to heed the, the advice of his wife. In Matthew 27, it says of his wife, he was, of Pilate, he was sitting on the judgment seat. His wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So perhaps Pilate trying to heed that advice, is just wants to dismiss Jesus. But as the frenzy is now in full force, verse 24, so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. He acquiesces. The squeaky wheel got the oil. And he released to them the one they requested for who, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will, ultimately to the will of the Father. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, a Simon of Cyrene, who, uh, Cyrenian, who was, be, who, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. The Roman guard could press anybody into service. They would lay their flat blade on, on a person's shoulder, and whatever they requested, you had to do. That's why Jesus referred when somebody... Uh, what Jesus was referring to when he talked about going with somebody two miles. They, they could say, you carry my pack for the next mile. And Jesus says, no, go even farther, go two miles. Simon of Cyrene had two sons. Mark 15 tells us that. Rufus and Alexander were their names. That their names are mentioned means that they were known by the early church. Paul says in Romans to salute Rufus. So it's possible that this act of carrying Jesus' cross caused Simon and his sons to be converted and to follow after Christ. You guys are doing well. Hang in there. And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, saying, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And this is a reference again to the destruction of Jerusalem. If they do these things while Jesus is alive, what's going to happen after he's gone is the question of 31. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. 
Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and the other on his left. It's the place of the skull. It's called Golgotha in Aramaic. In Latin, it's translated to Calvary. It's where we get our name, Calvary Chapel. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, even that fulfilling prophecy. But consider, as you're strung with your back opened wide to a, a, a splintered post, as they've crushed a crown of thorns on his head, and they nail his hands, his feet, into the wood, consider those words of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's an amazing prayer to consider in the moment. It's worthy of an entire sermon in itself. In fact, Spurgeon wrote a whole sermon just on that phrase. That Christ would pray, that Christ would speak with the Father in this way moments before his death is an amazing thing as they're driving the nails into his hands That's truly remarkable. Jesus' life was marked by prayer. Ours should be as well. Father, forgive them. Never forgetting who was his father, fulfilling the role in the his role in the Trinity. Christ cries to the one against whom they sin. He begs forgiveness on their behalf, on our behalf, of those who are driving the nails. Psalm 51, David, after killing Uriah and sleeping with the widow, says, Against you, God, against you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. But David had sinned against Uriah. He murdered him. David had sinned against Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her. But ultimately, as we all have, he sinned against God. Christ is crying out. They don't know what they're doing. He's aware of their ignorance. He knows that they're blind. Consider this. The blind don't see darkness. They see nothing. So they aren't... He knows that they're blind. He knows that they're not seeing. Christ here is demonstrating ultimate love. Love is being others-centered. And even in the throes of death, amidst crushing pain, he is thinking about other people. He has no concern for himself. That's amazing love. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And our Savior's heart is truly amazing. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Verse 35, the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, but let him, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. There's this cruel humor happening. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. This was his crime, that he was the king of the Jews. 
It is a true accusation, but it's not worthy of death. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and save us. The blasphemy of his statement is the word if. If you are the Christ. There is no if. He is the Christ. And to say if is to bring it into question that which is unquestionable. He stands therefore condemned. Their cross, the criminal's cross, and all those crosses in history, Rome crucified many. They all carried guilty men, except one. Only Christ's cross was wrongfully filled. And therefore, His is the only cross worthy of note. How deep the Father's love for us. We say the words, we sing the words, Behold the man upon the cross. The only one worthy of note. But the other, the other thief, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a... What an amazing thought on the, on the cross. This man knew that Jesus was going to die, and yet he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What amazing faith this man displays. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The humility of this criminal is greater than that of Jesus' disciples who are arguing who's the best. He recognizes that we, he's receiving his just punishment. They're fighting over who's the greatest at the Passover meal. Lord, let me sit at your right hand and left. The criminal admits he's guilty. He recognizes Jesus' lordship. He doesn't ask for position. He just asks to be remembered. Picture, or a perfect picture of repentance and faith. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom, what a strange statement on the surface, Christ on the cross. But by faith, he can see that that was not the end. Jesus' response here, assuredly I say to you, well, today you'll be with me in paradise, answers a lot of questions. Did Jesus descend into hell? No, because today you'll be with me in paradise. Is there such thing as soul sleep? No, because today you'll be with me in paradise. Do we need to be baptized to be saved? No, because today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief didn't come down off the cross to be baptized. Now, it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. That's uh, from noon till 3 p.m. And then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And that's significant. The veil separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the, the representation of where, of where God dwelt. No one was allowed into the Holy Holies except the high priest, and that only one time every year. They would tie a rope around his ankle in case he died in that room so they would be able to drag him out. But that veil, in the moment that Christ is crucified, is torn in two from top to bottom. It's what is told in Matthew. 
This is a large curtain. Um, historians would say it was nearly four inches thick. Try to tear something for it. Try to tear a phone book, a Columbus phone book. That's about four inches thick. It was such a massive thing that the historians would say that two horse teams wouldn't be able to tear it apart. Yet Christ, yet God, in this moment, tears it, indicating something very beautiful, that we now have access to the throne of God, that all may come through the the sacrifice of the Savior to the presence of God, that all may come to the mercy seat. Through the sacrifice of the spotless lamb, we're permitted into the presence of God. No longer the blood sacrifice of animals covering the high priest for a short time, Jesus' blood covers all for all time and allows us into his presence. Verse 46, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having this, having said this, he breathed his last. As he stated with the disciples, he gave up his life. No one took it. Isaiah 53, 12, because he poured out his soul unto death. Isaiah 53.8, he was cut off from the land of the living. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts in return. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, this is Joseph of Arimathea, a council member, a good, a just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Isaiah 53, 9, with the rich at his death. That was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath drew near, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Remember where we began tonight. That he shall be exalted. 
that he shall be extolled, that he shall be married high. It's Friday. The Sunday's coming. We're going to close tonight um, reflecting on all that he has done, following the commandment that he's given us to do in remembrance of him these things, to remember that he offered his body broken, bruised on our behalf, to remember that he has shed his blood that we might have life under a new covenant. We have at the table up front both the bread and the cup. Um, And normally we would pass it out and take it together, but I want tonight to be intimate. I want tonight to be personal. You guys sat through a long teaching hearing the, in, the, the depth of the Father's love for us. So just take a few minutes, reflect on that, pray a little bit, and when you feel as though you're prepared, come forward, take a piece of the bread, take the cup, participate in communion, and then just leave quietly. It's a time of sorrow. It's a time of reflection on this Good Friday. We'll come together again on Sunday. We'll celebrate. We'll, 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 we'll give glory to God in a great way. But tonight it's to reflect on that he bore our iniquity upon him. The chastisement of our sin was on him. I'm going to pray, and then when I, as you're ready to pray, you're welcome to come up and take communion. Father, we thank you for this time, and I thank you for these people I thank you for the word in Isaiah and Luke. I thank you for opening our eyes to the love that you have for us. And we want to be obedient to the command to do these things in remembrance of you, that your body was broken, that your blood was shed, that our sin might be forgiven, that we might be justified before a holy God, that we might be made righteous. Father, with all of my heart tonight, I just say thank you. Thank you for loving us. And as we move into communion, Lord, I pray that you touch every heart. And as we go from this place, that you would walk with us until we can meet again and celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode.